It's Thursday, October 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro and Motley Fool Options, Brian Hinman and Jeff Fisher. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. We've got a monopoly hey, today. We do. <laughs> Your service is just, just completely bogarted the podcast. <laughs> it's a duopoly. Uh, it, it is Pro a duopoly. Uh, earlier this week on CNBC, uh, Carl Quintanilla, who hosts Squawk on the Street, and we've had him on the radio show a couple of times, uh, referred to the earnings releases this week. He, he talked about it in terms of a fire hydrant. It's just been this <laughs> Ooh, nonstop blast. It feels that way. It really yeah. does feel that way. So we are actually going to take a break from the fire hydrant that is earnings this week for a round of undervalued, overvalued. And we will also dip into the full mailbag. But uh, Brian, stepping back from earnings a little bit, what is your undervalued stock right now? Sure. Well, uh, I've been looking a lot in the oil and gas space lately. And a company that keeps popping up in front of me is Halliburton. It's a company that a lot of people know. It's a pretty big company, $30 billion. Oiled uh, field services. Oil field services. Yeah, it's as close to a one-stop shop for drilling and production as there is. And really what I like about it is it's like the IBM of the oil and gas services industry. And by that, I mean it offers integrated solutions. Uh, it has a really good reputation. It's one of those where no one will get fired from hiring Halliburton. Uh, and they can price their products at a little bit of a premium because of it. So it's got, uh, you know, it, it definitely has those those big things going for it. But, but the issue here is there's some short-term hair, uh, some short-term problems uh, that I think uh, aren't big enough to worry me in the long term. So in the short term, there's there's oversupply of fracking equipment. So you know prices are getting hurt. Uh, as you constantly talk about, guar gum costs are through the roof. Boy, you can't get me to shut up about <laughs> guar gum costs. Uh, and uh, natural gas prices. What is guar gum? So guar gum. Yeah. Uh, it's used uh, to thicken propping flu- propent fluids uh, during uh, fracking. Which leads me to ask, what are propent fluids? <laughs> so guar gum is actually it's a natural substance. Uh, it's from a, a plant. I feel like this is now turned the, into this week in oil-filled services. <laughs> it's the one natural substance used in fracking. Exactly. Yeah, okay. and, and it comes almost exclusively from India and Pakistan, I think. Okay. Anyway, shortage. Prices through the roof. It's really uh, uh, right causing costs to go through the roof. Uh, anyway, and, and natural gas prices, which everyone talks about, are really low. So, yep. uh, you know, companies are shutting down natural gas rigs. Some of those are switching over to oil. Um, so Halliburton is still winning some business, but on the net, it's been a negative. So all of these things are working against it right now. Uh, the company's financial results are sort of showing that, those problems. Uh, but in the long term, um, production to meet future demand is definitely going to come from unconventional sources. And these are the harder to get at, you know, places for oil and gas. Uh, to get those, uh, they require somewhere between three and ten times the amount of services of a traditional well. So that really bodes well for Halliburton. Uh, and the other thing that I think going on here is uh, obviously there's some increased regulatory scrutiny that these drilling companies are under because, you know, fracking is uh, – we're worried about that polluting the water table. You know, you had the, the BP oil spill. Mm-hmm. So uh, – Big firms want to work with uh, established firms, and they want to work with fewer firms, so there are less uh, there are less less of them to monitor. So they have higher accountability. So that really plays into the bigger firms' hands, like Halliburton. I was just going to say it, it, we've talked about this with other industries as well. It seems like when when times get tough, the in in any given industry, the companies that are bigger. Uh, while they may struggle, at least from the share standpoint, the share price standpoint, um, they also benefit in the long run because they're able to weather the storm a little bit uh, and sort of the smaller competitors get get shaked out. 
Um, you mentioned uh, IBM referring to Halliburton as the mm-hmm. IBM of oil field services. IBM, as a stock over the last 18, 19 years, has just been a phenomenal market beater. Um, when you look at Halliburton and you say it's undervalued, what are you, what are you expecting out of the stock over the next three to five years. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that IBM has done so well is that it was able to transform itself uh, and focus much more on services. Uh, Halliburton is doing this to a lesser degree. Uh, it still makes the actual picks, picks and shovels, uh, you know, that it, that it uses in its services and sells. But uh, a couple of years ago, it started its own transition to uh, become a one-stop shop, become an integrated services um Provider, uh, much in you know in the shadow of IBM, in the same vein as IBM. So uh, that transformation is similar, and you know the, the stock is in the low 30s right now, and uh, you know we're always going to have some cyclicality with oil and gas, uh, but I think the company is is worth probably closer to fifty dollars. Uh, it's just you know we've got these near term headwinds. And the ticker symbol H A L. Jeff, what's your undervalued stock? Well, you know it may just be me, but if Halliburton's image. Or brand image is kind of like the mean old man, the cranky old man, Halliburton. They've, you know, then my stock is the cute little old lady. It's <laughs> it's Tupperware. Tupperware, sure. Tupperware. The ticker is T U P. It's the old, somewhat teasable brand in the U.S., but it's really a, a stealth emerging market story now. Sixty-six percent of revenue comes from overseas, and that revenue grew eleven percent last quarter. And I think Tupperware is part of what. History books are going to be written about a generation or two from now, which is that when the authors look at the decades that we're living through, the 80s, Chris, you mentioned IBM since the early 80s, the 80s through, let's say, 2050, the story, the overarching theme is going to be global globalization, The mm-hmm. all these markets opening up. So all these U.S. companies that were dominant in the U.S. were able to grow all around the world, whether it's IBM, Nike, or McDonald's, all of which earn more than half the revenue outside the U.S. now. Or the S&P 500 in general, where 46% of sales came from outside the U.S. last year. That's the story that is happening in our lifetimes. And when in, uh, investors look back generation or two from now, they're going to see a stock chart for the market indexes that has gradually cl- climbed from 1980 to 2050. You know, looking at 70-year spans, the dips look really small. Yep. And the main reason why is going to be because the whole world opened up to all these U.S. dominant companies. that That's assuming everything goes well. Back to Tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why wouldn't we assume that everything... I mean, when you look at the EU, when you look at the economy in China slowing, why yeah, well, wouldn't you just assume everything's well, going to go look well? Look at the 30s, look at the Great Depression, look at World War II, look at uh, you know the Cold War. And there are always problems. The market always climbs a wall of worry. So Tupperware trades at $59. At, that's 12 times this year's expected earnings. Earnings grew last quarter, which was just announced yesterday. They were up 14%, and they were up 28% if you exclude the impact of foreign currencies. Now, part of that is the company bought back 9% of its shares the past year. They have a a steady recurring buyback program that they hope to continue indefinitely. Finally, Chris, I'll wrap up. They uh, they model 6% to 8% annual sales growth in local currency. They yield 2.7%. And then they're buying back shares. So you're looking at double-digit annualized gains for a product that is a low-risk, kind of low-innovation hurdle, and that's really growing in the emerging markets where Tupperware is giving all these women and men jobs where it's hard to find a job and placing their products into really dense population centers and spreading that way, growing that way. 
You mentioned the stock. Uh, you mentioned their earnings, and uh, just yesterday they reported earnings, and the stock was up eight uh, percent as a result of the earnings. So I'm assuming if you think it was undervalued, clearly it was more undervalued at the beginning of the week. Do you still feel like even with the the pop that we just saw yesterday, this is this is still an undervalued stock? That's certainly what I do feel. The shares are fifty nine. I think fair value is around sixty four, so nearly ten percent higher, and that would be eleven times earnings for next year. And, and one thing to keep in mind is fair value means fair value, a fair price for a seller and a buyer, clearly. So it's it's the price from which to expect your desired rate of return, your your hurdle rate. And in this case, the hope is Tupperware can grow annualized around 10%, uh, starting around 64. So a lot of people see fair value and think that's the sell price. And it's it's only a sell price if you want a margin of safety, if you only want to own stocks that are undervalued. Otherwise, it's a it's a fair price to keep holding as well. All right, Brian, let's move over to overvalued stocks. What do you got? Well, I'm not sure how this fits into the whole uh, curmudgeonly old guy versus the happy old grandmother. Uh, <laughs> but my overvalued stock is The Gap. Uh, oh, that's the young kind of hipster teen who's, who thinks it's a new brand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go with that. Uh, anyway, ticker symbol GPS trading for around $35. Um so Gap has done a, a really good job over the past couple of years running its business, executing its strategy. Uh, the problem that I see is that the low-hanging fruit is gone. Uh, they've been shedding uh, shedding unprofitable stores. They've been really focusing a lot of their efforts on growing uh, internationally and growing their online sales. Uh, they've really cleaned up on the inventory side. So the business looks much fitter now. The problem with that is that now, what the company needs to sort of take that next step in the share price to, to catapult higher is that uh, the merchandising and uh, the value proposition really need to take uh, front front stage here, and that's where I see the problem. Uh, I don't know that uh, I don't believe that Gap resonates really well. The Gap brands resonate with uh, customers right now. It's still a dominant uh, North American firm. Uh, in order for good things to happen for the share price and, and the needle to be moved, they've got to they have to boost North American sales. Uh, and like I said, I just don't think that the merchandising mix uh, is there. Uh, there's too much competition. Uh, there are too many aspirational brands out there that are trying to play their value cards. So they're getting gap is getting creeped in on from the top, uh, and then certainly from the bottom end, you know, you have a, a bunch of resurgent retailers who are looking to, uh, you know, scoop up the, the lower end. So gap is really being squeezed, and I don't know that they have the brands to uh, take that next step. Uh, and I certainly don't believe that they have the brands to, over the long term, uh, maintain pricing power. I've got uh, one fun stat for you here, Chris. In 1969. Uh, an average pair of jeans at the Gap costs $71. I look today at men's and women's. $71? $71 in 1969. Inflation adjusted? Today? No, no. It, today. What? Wait, wait, wait. wait. Hold on. Before you get to the today. Yeah, no. You're really <laughs> you're killing, my, killing my my. But my, that's not adjusted for inflation? $71? $71. So that would be I'm calling $300 shenanigans. maybe? I'm, I'm calling shenanigans on that. I'm, okay, so source <laughs> for that is on Gap's website. So... Okay. I'll, I'll leave it there. Today, right. anyway, it. today, uh, average price is $70. So, from 1969 to 2012, however many years that is, right? That's what? That's 43. 43, 43 years. there, math whiz. Okay. Uh, that's a decline of 1.4% per cent 
uh, compounded. Uh, inflation over the same period, Jeff, you took the words right out of my mouth. Inflation from 1969 to two, 2012 up cumulatively uh, 5.2, uh, excuse me, 523.74%. So while from 1969 to 2012, GAAP has been able to hold its gene price steady, uh, Inflation has gone up 523%. So it just doesn't have the ability to raise prices. It seems like when you – I looked at a quick stock chart before we came in here. I was stunned because once upon a time I owned shares of Gap and then it just just didn't really move and I I found another stock to buy. So I sold that and and bought something else instead. I was stunned to see that year-to-date – Shares of Gap are up about 80%. It is is beaten the market by a factor of four and – so to to me it sounds like you know what you said earlier about the way that they have sort of gotten their business house in order that's been a big part of what's probably been driving this stock price but now it's you know what's you know what's the growth opportunity and I don't know it just seems like if you if you're a shareholder and you're understandably thrilled about what the stock has done this year You'd be insane to think that that's going to happen over the next, you know, two, three, four, five years. Yeah, I think you're right there, Chris. I mean, uh, you look back a couple of years and uh, the business was bad all around. Now they've fixed the business and uh, everything hinges on the product and how, you know, they're going to be able to drive sales. And so if you're a Gap shareholder, that's the question you really need to be asking is do you believe in the brands and that the brands will resonate with the North American customer and that they'll be able to execute internationally? Yeah, Brian, I would ask, are they bringing in young buyers again? Because it is my go-to place, but I'm 42 years old. <laughs> I go there. It's simple. I'm intimidated by the other hipster jeans places where the, they have loud blasting music and whatnot. You're not but, hanging out at Abercrombie and Fitch? <laughs> no, I'm not. It, don't have the build to hang out there, but but Gap is just the the basic go to for blue jeans, and I usually pay forty bucks or so. So to your point, yeah, prices have not gone up yeah. anywhere. Jeff, what's your overvalued stock? Oh, this will be fun. My overvalued is actually an equity option. So okay, it's an option. An option is the right to buy or sell the stock. So it's a May two thousand thirteen. $50 put option on OpenText. Okay. Let's start with there. Let's wait, let's start with OpenText. What is OpenText? OpenText is a software company. They're an information management software okay. based in Canada. They've grown strongly in the last many years and should continue to grow sales by double digits annualized. The and ticker is OTEX. Okay. It is a stock we own in pro. I happen to think the stock is undervalued as well. But that would make its put options overvalued. Because a put option gives you the right to sell a stock at a set price. In this case, shares are fifty-two fifty. The May two thousand thirteen fifty-dollar put options are four dollars and forty cents each. So now, you know, this is probably the first time this has happened on a podcast talking about put options in depth because it's such riveting <laughs> content. It's certainly the first time it's happened on this it, podcast. It's perfect on, on audio, too. And I would just say it? to our listeners, take note because this, this may be the last time we talk about <laughs> this on this podcast. This All may right. be an historic one. So I really have to make it count. Okay, so shares are $52. These $50 put options give you the right to to if you sell them you can sell the put options you can basically short the put options okay okay and you can get paid $4.40 for shorting these put options okay right there so it's $4.40 you'll be paid right now that's an 8.8% yield on the $50 share price 
in just over six months. Great yield in six months. The shares have to fall 13% for you to break even on this trade. If they stay up or fall anything less than 13%, you make money. So what we would do is sell to open these $50 put options on OpenTex, take, collect this money, this okay. $4.40, keep it, that's income, and then just wait. As long as this $52 stock stays above 46 or so, you make money. If it stays above 50 you make this full payment, this full income. So that's why I think this put option is much overvalued, especially because we think the shares are worth 60-plus. I have several. Sense? I have several <laughs> questions here, but let, let, let me let me just start with this one. What, what is likely to happen in the next six months to this company to drive this stock in either direction a significant amount? What happens to a business like OpenText in the next six months to make the shares shoot up above sixty, or to make it drop below forty? With a software company, what the market looks at most are new license sales. So the new the new business that you bring in because that leads to recurring sales. And everyone models in a certain amount of new sales every year, and then that becomes recurring revenue, so they model that out going forward as far as you can see. So if new sales are light, the stock could get hit quite a bit, 10%, 20%. But OpenText has been very steady and a steady grower for the most part since as long as I've been following it, 2007. The stock has done very well. It has a wide open market ahead of it as companies work to manage their electronic data. And uh, the shares are reasonably priced. So that's why I don't think the shares are going to fall this sharply. And that's why I think selling to open or writing these put options will pay you good income or result in you getting to get the shares. If the shares fall below 50 by your expiration date, you get to buy them. You still keep what these put options paid you. So your start price is around $45. All right, Chris, we need to, we need to summarize here. Open tech shares, good. Buying open text puts, which is saying, uh, I want to bet against open text. I think it's going to go down. Bad. Selling open text or shorting open text puts, good. Yes. Nailed Thank it. Thank you, Brian. Nailed it. Wingman. S- Nailed sell to it. open those May $50 puts on open text. Collect your 440 That's $440 per put option you write, I should say, because each option represents 100 shares of stock. So you need to be ready to buy 100 shares of the stock. If they fall, uh, for any of our dozens of listeners who live in the Orlando, Florida, and are still listening, <laughs> uh, area, uh, Open Text is uh, having a big uh, conference of some sort, Enterprise World 2012, November 11th through the 16th. So, by all means, if you're if you're in the area <laughs> and you're planning on going, you know, share uh, Jeff's wisdom. It's a good company. Visit and report back to us. Uh, radio at fool dot com is the way to email us. Uh, please save your angry emails. You can just email Jeff directly. <laughs> uh, but uh, did get an email from are a great tool. They are a great tool. They can really change how you invest, make you a much better investor, generate steady income month after month. I know. I'm no, happy no, to uh, take punches, but I have to no, no, I have to stand up for my boy I, options. I'm not disputing any of that, and that's one of the reasons you're a much better investor than I am. I'm just saying that uh, it's easy to make fun of this. As modest of you, Chris, <laughs> but it is, and I, I like being made fun of, oddly enough. Uh, you should have me on more frequently. E- uh, after today, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> we got an email from Caleb Van Wingerton. Uh, in Lynchburg, Virginia. He writes, I've been enjoying the podcast for the last six months straight. I can only assume that's about to end. Um, (laughs) As you become a part of my daily commute, I basically consider you guys friends along with the solid insight. It's almost inevitable that you give me a laugh, which makes the show that much more enjoyable. So thank you. Thank you. That's very nice. Really appreciate that, Caleb. Um, He goes on to write, so the real reason for my email, I'm 24 years old, 25 on Friday. 
Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, I'm single. I have low expenses. I have roughly $900 going into mutual funds monthly through a 401k, and then another 300 going into a Roth IRA. My portfolio totals around 30000 uh, 2000 of this is in cash in the Roth, and I'd like to start building positions in more individual businesses. My question is, how do I best go about doing that while balancing expense ratio, diversification, and market fluctuations? A dollar cost averaging solves part of it, but at $8 a trade, it doesn't seem to be a great option. Um, there's obviously a lot going on there. Um, let's start with open text puts. <laughs> you can- <laughs> let's, let's not. But I mean, t- you know... I, I, as we've talked about, and I think anyone who listens on a regular basis knows, we, we, we focus very much on the businesses, the underlying businesses themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to not pay too much attention to the general noise of, of market fluctuations and, and that sort of thing. So we, we try and sort of cancel a lot of that stuff out. But um, but I think that's a great point about dollar cost averaging because in theory, it, it makes a lot of sense, but it does eat into your cost when you're when you're paying for every trade you're making. Yeah, I will say it's great. He's so young. He's saved a good amount of money already. Yeah, kudos for that. Yeah, Caleb, is, Caleb is killing it. And yeah. investing every month, exactly. Certainly, you are doing great, Caleb. And I will say, I also remember in the mid-1990s when a commission broke $20, and it was $19.99 per trade. Yeah. So to me, $8 is a it's it's hard to top that. These brokers need to make a little money too or they won't be in business. But let's keep it to a reasonable percentage of your of your trade. Uh you're so young that you could buy in my opinion, you say you have 2000 to invest right now. You could invest that now into one company that you really believe in. Your $8 commission is 4 tenths of 1%. That's great. Or you could divide it the two thousand into three purchases, and your commission at eight dollars is still only one point two percent. Eight dollars times three, one point two percent. That's still good. That's still good. That's still below sort of the average commission for a mutual fund, which is around one and a half percent. So I mean, right. you know, on a comparative basis, you're, you're still doing pretty well there. But he has the right thing in mind, of course, to keep it as low as possible. So I would say, at this age, assuming you're comfortable with what you're buying, you can just put it all in one stock. At a time, two thousand dollars at a time, have a really low commission each time you do that, and over several months, let alone a few years, you'll be well diversified. Um, we've shared a couple of stocks that you guys think are undervalued, but beyond that, uh, Brian, what would advice would you give him in terms of looking at industries, looking at stocks uh, when he's looking to narrow down his choices? Sure. So uh, he you mentioned diversification too, uh, and so I just want to point out that. Assuming he is diversified in his mutual fund selections in his IRA, yep. uh, Caleb is going to be diversified uh, because he has 28000 in that IRA and he's 2000 he's looking to invest in right. individual names. Yep. So uh, as far as it goes for diversification for Caleb, uh, he doesn't have a lot to worry about as long as he's you know diversified across, across asset classes. So what to do and where to look uh, for that individual stock investing, uh, I think the best answer for him, honestly, is to uh, just look at things that he's interested in, things that he will uh, be able to follow, things that he'll be willing to put the time in to learn the business. Uh, I think that's really sort of the best way to get started uh, and to ensure that he's going to stick with it and, and not lose interest along the way. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I, I think I've said this before. The worst investment I ever made was not a stock that went down. It was actually a biotechnology stock that I bought that went up 
And I couldn't sleep at night because for the life of me, I had no idea what this business was doing. And I couldn't stand the fact that I just didn't understand the business yeah. at all, as opposed to Starbucks, which is a business that I understand quite yeah, the well. Yeah, be- the, best, the best reason to sell a stock is when uh, your thesis is busted. And if you have no idea what the company does, you can't understand it, you'll have no clue when the thesis is actually busted. So you need to pick a name that you're interested in following and that you will follow and that you understand. Jeff? Uh, it's hard to add on to that, but I'll, I'll I'll say look for companies that have strong recurring revenue as well. And many software companies do, many transactional-based companies do, the the major credit card uh, issuers, for instance. And uh, but yeah, you have to be interested in it, and you you need to well, you you need to be comfortable with it, as as you said, Chris. If if you're not, then it doesn't matter. How well it does, you're going to end up making the wrong decision at some point. Yeah, I think it, it bears saying here that you know Caleb is 24, 25. Uh, he has 50 years to invest before he needs to start worrying about you know getting a little more conservative. So he asked about market fluctuations, and I say ignore them because you have 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing I'll say is Jeff made a great point when he was uh, off on his tangent when we were talking about Tupperware about globalization being this you know when when we look back in 50 years, what will we see? What yep. will people be writing about? They will be writing about that shift. So that's another great place for, for uh, Caleb to look is companies that are really hitting their stride within globalization. All right, Brian Hinman, Jeff Fisher. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. As thanks always, for uh, tolerating me. <laughs> as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. If he's still awake, our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Boom. Well, there goes the Motley Fool options reopen. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, options on radio fail. Honey, come quick. They're talking about buying puts on open text. <laughs> writing them, not buying them, selling oh. them, writing them. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's trending on Twitter right now. If you gave me a little more detail, I think it would have worked. <laughs> I'll you send say? you a PDF. What did you say? <laughs> if you gave me a little more detail, I think I would have got it.